in the reading corner today it gives me the greatest pleasure to be welcoming Patrick Ness. Patrick is very well known to listeners of our podcast for his award-winning Chaos Walking trilogy. Uh, the film is currently in post-production with an expected release date early next year. He's also the writer of A Monster Calls, which was developed from an idea by Siobhan Dowd, uh, won the Carnegie Medal for writing, and we also have to say uh, the Kate Greenaway for Jim Kay's very broodingly atmospheric illustration. Monster Calls was adapted for theatre at the Old Vic. I had the privilege of going to see that. And you wrote the screenplay as well. And if anybody has seen that film and had a dry eye at the end of either reading the book or seeing the film, then frankly, their hearts are made of stone. Uh, Release was published in 2017. It's an intense personal coming of age story. Uh, It deals with perennial themes, young adult themes of sexuality and relationships. It is a painful story, but it's very warm and beautiful too. And today we're going to be talking about Patrick's very recently published novel, Burn. It's a story set in 1950s America, but in a world that is not quite our own because it's inhabited by dragons. And these are dragons who've developed a pact with humans. And so in spite of their power, which far outweighs the physical power of humans, they have become partially subjected It's an uneasy relationship. And in this world, there is a cult of dragon worshippers, the believers. The story is propelled by the fulfilment of a prophecy and the characters who are destined to play their parts. So welcome, Patrick. Hi, Nikki. How are you doing? First of all, congratulations on the publication of Burn. It's an incredibly uh, rich book. So I wondered whether it's a story that had been gestating for a long time and whether you started with the concept, the idea, the plot, or the characters? Well, I mean, all that kind of stuff, uh, I never quite know. I mean, the I always wanted to write a book about dragons. And much like when I wrote more than this, I had always wanted to write a book about being the last person alive on the planet. Um, so these are, you know, but these are premises. They're not plots, they're not books. Mm. And so I, I kind of just wait with the idea to see what it legs it grows, you know, and what ideas it sprouts to, switch metaphors mid-sentence. But uh, I'd always wanted to ride dragons, I always loved dragons. Um, you know, they were quite popular for a while with all the Game of Thrones stuff and with, uh, there was Smaug in the Hobbit movies. Um, and uh, I just never, you know, I was waiting for the right story because if you just, I always feel if you start too early, you know, you need lots of ideas for a book, lots and lots and lots and lots, and one premise isn't gonna carry it. So I just waited. I just waited and then I suddenly, I can't remember why, um, and there might not even be a why, but I just had this idea of like, what if it was 1950s America, but with dragons? And I love alternate realities because all, that's all a book ever is. I've always argued for the longest time that there is no such thing as a realistic novel. All novels are fantasy, even if they look like our lives, even if they look like our daily lives right now, they're still fantastical. It is still a world created of words like a, Seth says and more than this and uh, so I always think if you can embrace that if I can embrace that as a writer then the illusion between the putatively realistic and the putatively fantastical doesn't matter 
all that needs to take place is a world, all that needs to happen rather is that you need to create a world where the story could logically take place. And that challenge is always interesting to me. Mm -hmm. So the idea that what if we had the same more or less history as we do now in our real world, um, but we'd always had to contend with dragons. And that's super, super interesting to me. So suddenly that kind of perked me up because this all leads into another thing, which is the sort of ongoing idea that I've always had that uh, Back to the Future, the movie Back to the Future is only a comedy if you're a straight white guy. If you're anybody else, you do not want to go back to the 50s. It would, you know, it would involve a serious reduction in your quality of life, like I always say. Because, for example, I have eight nieces and nephews in my immediate family, on my side of the family. And of those eight, six are multiracial. And when I did some research for the book, because the lead character has an African-American mother and a white father, I, you know, looked up the law for my home state, Washington State in the United States, when they repealed the law against interracial marriage. And the repeal was in the late 1800s. So where are those people in history? Where are they in fictional history? Do you know what I mean? And they, you, you never see them. So where are the people who look like my nieces and nephews in 50 stories? You know, they're mm. not, they're never on happy days. You know, where are they? Yeah. And the other, the other thing I found out was that um, I come from a, a small town outside of Tacoma, Washington called Puyallup. And Puyallup, uh, if it's known for anything, is known for its daffodils, it makes beautiful daffodils, but also for the state fair. The state fair is there and it's the biggest fair on the West Coast. It's huge. And I discovered that that fairground, that actual fairground where I had been and been on rides and eating junk food, and eating fair food and so on, 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 that fairground was actually a Japanese internment camp in World War II. And I had never known that. I had never been taught that at the school. And again, you know, something that disappears. Mm -hmm. Because I worked with a woman in college. I worked with a woman who had been born in a, a Japanese internment camp in California. And she would tell me stories about how as a teenager in the 50s in Los Angeles, because after the war, her family moved back to Los Angeles, where they were from because they were Americans. She was with her friends from high school that hang around outside the movie studios like Paramount, 20th Century Fox, and Warner Brothers to meet movie stars because it was different in the 50s. And they really wanted to meet Elvis. And so they met Elvis a lot. And I just thought, where in fiction, where in film is the Japanese American teenage girl in the 50s? hanging out to meet Elvis with her friends. They're never in stories. They're never in, they're never in the movies about the 50s, hardly ever. So that really interested me. What did the 50s look like if you weren't a straight white guy? Because there's also Malcolm in the book who is, who is a white guy, but not straight. So what does that mean? How do, how do, you, how do you live your life in, in that time? And it just sort of, in my head, <laughs> mixed together well with dragons. Absolutely. Well, that explains quite a bit about the diversity of the characters in the story. It's set in the 1950s, but it's set in a very specific time in the 1950s. You've chosen to date it, 1957, at the time that Eisenhower is coming into his second term. What did that specific time mean and why did you choose that? That is the year that Sputnik was launched, the Russian satellite, which was the first satellite, and that changed everything. And the idea that they are, the world is on the verge of becoming a, a wildly different place, um, and what does that mean, is really interesting to me. You know, fiction is most interesting on the cusps, you know, when things are about to change. And uh, that is very much a cusp moment, and it's like, it's like how the world changed when the internet happened. 
with that big a deal because suddenly the world was connected in a way that it wasn't before. Suddenly you felt accurately or not, you felt like you uh, were now under surveillance all the time. There was no way to get away from it. And so that felt like that moment felt particular. Everything was about to change. And also, you know, the fifties were a cold war, which is not an entirely dissimilar type of quote unquote peace that we have now where the biggest powers, China and Russia and America are saber rattling at one another now, like they did a bit in the fifties. And, uh, and so the tension in the air and the trying to live your life uh, in the milieu of tension just really interested me. So I picked 1947 specifically because it's a, it's a very, very much a world on the cusp. Some readers might detect uh, religious connotations not only, obviously, it's very specific in the book, but um, in the title itself, the idea of burn um, is often a, a, an idea that's used in religion. And you've spoken in the past about growing up in a religious family. Were you working through any of those personal views about religion in this story? Not really in, in that way. It's more that the metaphorical journey of a teenager is, to me, those moments where you step away from your family for the first time and say, I am no longer this thing that I have been taught to believe. And those are necessary moments. And they can be painful. They can be huge ruptures. They can be great liberation when you realize, oh, I don't have to be this thing that I've been taught. They can be, you know, there's no, I'm not touching a quality to that moment. It's just something we all go through where we step out into the world on our own and make our own realizations and our points of view shift. And so that's really what, Malcolm and the Believer called Malcolm is uh, the other main character in the book um, who's been taught his entire life to believe one particular way. So it's not, it's not necessarily about the belief. It's about the shift in belief because there's a line where he meets Nelson, the boy he falls in love with. And he says he's something like he stepped into the campfire uh, met to meet, and met Nelson and thus the fate of billions was changed. And that's what interests me. It's quite interesting listening to you talk about that because shift happens at a juncture in this particular story you feel that you're heading for a climax the climax feels as it happens halfway through and then you're on course for a second climax really yeah. and in a way it fits with the journey of Malcolm that you're talking about because at the beginning of this novel you feel that he is established as a chosen one that he has a noble quest to fulfill that's a fairly common trope and then the shift is to something else so were you deliberately playing with and subverting that trope was that an important part of this well I mean I've done that a lot before I did I the rest of us just live here is uh 100% about the chosen one trope mm -hmm. <laughs> playing with it for here it was more what a story is that I wanted to yank the rug out from underneath you about you know and it, it was definitely some about the build of a YA teenage story I also did this in more than this which for me was here's your YA mystery in part one here's the answer to your YA mystery in part two and then but then there's a part three which says are you sure and that to me was the sort of um, structure of more than this and burn is similar in a way in that here's this here's everything you think that you know here's a, here's every way you expect the story to go but then there's more, because there's always more. And I did want to break the expected structure of a book, because I think that's kind of thrilling mm -hmm. when you think you know where a book is going, and then it does, but then there's a lot more left, you know, <laughs> and uh, 
so that that felt really that is it was that kind of challenge yeah it was interesting i was halfway through the story i thought it feels as though it's coming to the end it can't be coming to the end i've still got all this to read (laughs) so (laughs) um there is a mythology uh in this story the mythology of dragons it feels very ancient were you basing it on any specific mythologies or is this one that you've just created well i mean it's fun to play with the expectations about dragons I prefer my dragons to talk. Not all dragons do in dragon stories, but I prefer mine to talk. And, uh, and you know, and the idea that they hoard gold and that gold is their thing, you know, that's fun. But then the idea to really try to logically answer the question of how did dragons get to this world? And how did this accommodation with mankind come about? And that to me is where the interesting stuff fictionally happens, you know, because you have to be very, very rigorous that the reality of your universe, whatever it is, has to make sense and has to be logical. You can never let the reader feel like, hey, wait a minute, that's not right. It has to work. And so to keep constantly asking the question of, well, what would, what would it really be like? And what would the results of that reality be? And I thought, um, if they had agreed to coexist, if they'd had battles over time, there would have to be something like the idea of reservations that Native Americans were placed on. So if that was true, how would that be accommodated? How would dragons, if they decided to um, make this peace, would they withdraw from human affairs completely? And, and then also just pushing it further and further and further. How did they get here? Were they always here? You know, what, how does the magic of a dragon exist in a world that doesn't seem like a magic world? And so that kind of stuff really, really interests me. And, and the answers to those questions have to feel true. They have to feel true to the world that you've created. And so I just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and really don't let myself off the hook until I have an answer that is proper and feels, you know, feels almost scientific, mm-hmm. even though it's only scientific for this fictional world, if you see what I mean. So, yeah, you really you can't let yourself off the hook. You've got to really, really work at it, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, you have to convince us that you can kill a dragon, which yes, you do. <laughs> there has to be there has there has to be a real why, and there has to be a real um, the law around it has to be real. You know that sort of thing. It has to be if 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 a dragon is a sentient creature, what is the penalty for the murder of a dragon? Then why don't dragons just kill men? You know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So you really really got to keep going because every question brings up another one, and you've got to answer those until you've created a universe where everything makes sense. Absolutely. I want to ask you a question where I might be way off beam here, but I want to ask you a question about the naming of your characters, Malcolm and Sarah. Um, I found those particularly interesting names and I wondered whether there was any significance behind them. I realised that I should probably ask you about the naming of Grace as well. Most of those are just my idea of a 50 sounding name that isn't alien. Gertrude, for example, would be quite alien, even though it would be a common name from the 50s, you know. And so um, so I wanted a name that felt plausibly 50s, but wasn't alienating. But um, I, I really try not to place too much on the metaphor behind a name. Um, what I like is that if you notice all of the main characters on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, all of the main, actually all the main female characters, there are lots of names like Dawn and Hope and faith and glory you know names that are also nouns that suggest something without being overly definitive and so grace i first logically thought well when you meet grace you understand why her father might name her grace 
if you know what I mean. And that just felt sweet. So there's, there is, you know, there is a metaphorical tinge to her name, but it's also personal because you can see why a father would lovingly name his daughter Grace if she feels like his grace, the grace that he's been given. Malcolm was just like pulled it out of the air. It's an, it was the name of somebody that I knew that I don't actually care for that much. And so I thought, let's see how this name feels. And Sarah, Sarah's from the Bible. So nothing specific because I really don't want to, I really don't want to burden them yeah. with that much specifics. I prefer the names to be suggestive rather than a full underline. We've been working in the film industry quite a lot of, of, of late, um, both on your own books and other projects too. I think there are definitely some scenes or some episodes in Burn that would make fantastic scenes in films. Um, there's a shoot down that reminded me of a Western. Uh, there's a dragon flying that I could see in Game of Thrones. And, um, you know, the scene where Casimir picks up the truck with Sarah and her father inside. I could see that both from inside the truck and outside the truck and uh, the irony there. So I suppose I wanted to ask you a question that I'm sure you've been asked before. But when you're writing, are you thinking about its potential adaptation for cinema? And a second part to that question is whether working in film has in any way influenced your writing. Well, the first, uh, to answer the first one is definitely not. The first book I wrote after A Monster Calls and after I'd worked on Chaos Walking film was released, which is a almost entirely internal novel set over the course of the day with one character. <laughs> so that is, a you know, not, it's definitely, it's definitely not my most cinematic novel. It's probably my most literary. So, um, so not automatically, no. Um, I've always been, when I write, drawn to images. Uh, because I feel like if there's something compelling that I that I'm responding to, then there must be something there might be something rich there, and that can be a big image or a small image. And I've done that with all my books. And the image the image of the dragon picking up their truck and flying them the rest of the way to their farm felt kind of a perfect encapsulation of everything. It happens in chapter one, so we're not giving anything away. <laughs> so it feels like a perfect encapsulation of everything I liked about the combination of dragons and dragons in the fifties that felt just so strong. Um, I didn't. I didn't necessarily think of it as cinematic. I just thought um, this feels really. There's so much in this: the helplessness of the people in the van, the idea that dragons are the kind of lowest. The ones who the dragons who the most dragons in this world keep to themselves and don't interact with man at all, and the ones who do tend to be the lowest paid workers. You know, you only do that if you, you only hire them if you're really poor. So that combination of the lowest paid worker plus all this power that was really interesting to me. So. I've always tended to try to respond to compelling images because I feel like if I'm compelled by them, hopefully a reader will be. And I don't know that it's changed so much. Um, only in the way that um, I've said this a million times, but I really believe that complacency is creative death. And I am so worried about being complacent and just writing the same thing that I've done before. Uh, and so every book, I'm not really interested in writing it unless there's a huge chance of failure, unless there's there's a real narrow line to be walked and that will make me pay attention and that will make me work really hard to achieve it. Um, you know, I haven't, it's not conscious, but every book that I've turned in, you know, the Chaos Walking Trilogy, then A Monster Calls, which is small and intimate and completely different than an epic saga. And then more than this, which was uh, back to epic sagas and then Breast of Us Just Live Here, which was sort of a satire then Release, which was based on Mrs. Dalloway and is very close and internal. Then on the ocean was her sky, which was big and illustrated, but short and about Moby Dick. So, I mean, 
every everyone without a, some big plan has been really different from the one before mainly because i'm just so afraid of complacency and um that's one of the reasons why working in film and television has been really interesting because it's so such a different discipline that you have to grow and you have to adapt and you have to learn new things and so i suppose only in the sense of you know that i've had to i've had to really try and push myself and try to learn new ways of telling stories. You know, I always want to keep learning. I want to keep learning until I'm done writing, <laughs> whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. I want everything to have something new to it. Because uh, if, if I'm not learning and if I'm not really stretching, if I'm not really striving, I feel like the book won't, has no chance of ever being any good. Mm. We've talked a little bit about religion already. Uh, just wanted to ask you as a preliminary to the next question whether you see burn as being an anti-faith story uh no no and i don't yeah i'd be surprised at that reading of it i know Mm. that malcolm shifts from his beliefs Mm. um but it's there's you know there's a there's a great there's a quote in one of the novels by the great russell hoban where one of the characters says they're arguing about god and faith and one of the characters says belief in god is god which is something I do believe that it it isn't necessarily the thing that you believe in that gives you the strength. It's it's your belief, and that to me is interesting. The power of faith, because Malcolm's faith helps him achieve something nearly impossible, and uh, that he was lied to, and that he has you know, chooses to move away from it, doesn't reduce that achievement. And so I think it's just about learning where where to place your faith how to use faith because if his faith shifts from the believers who are clearly a cult um, and clearly uh, have a somewhat poisonous worldview but if he can use that faith uh, at the very end of the book for example he makes a decision and that decision is based on faith in someone so he's taken the power of his faith and shifted it to a different purpose so I don't think it's anti-faith. I think it's just about how you use your faith. And is it goodness? Is it peace? Is it kindness? Is it strength? You know, um, or is it something more destructive? And that has been the question that's plagued humanity since we started having faith. Um, and I think it's an interesting one. Okay, so I'm going to something completely different with this next question. Sure. I was really interested in your choice of epigraphs for this book, <laughs> especially as I went to see Susie and the Banshees at Dingwalls in Camden in 1977. So (laughs) could you say a little bit about why you chose those two pieces? Well, I love epigraphs. Epigraphs are just so much fun because do they mean anything for the book? Not necessarily. You know, I think they're, I've always viewed them as the author having a little bit of fun and uh, they can, and they do, they do suggest themes. I've always chosen them thematically but they're kind of a little bonus for the author. I've always loved them. I know not every author uses them. I have always used them because I've always noticed them in books and I've always read them. I read every epigraph. Um, my previous epigraphs had been quite appropriate. And uh, my favorite, my favorite epigraph I've ever had was for more than this was from Amy Mann, where she says, you, uh, you ask a question in the mirror, alas, no answer could be clearer. That to me is kind of everything that we feel as human beings. Um, but this one, after release and after and the ocean was our sky there which were two very closely inward looking plots i was ready to write a really explosive story that this is just story 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 plot 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 and uh 
which doesn't mean it's lacking in character and stuff because I always think plot is a machine and you get your machine working, you just let it work. And then you can put in all the things you care about like character and theme and so on. Um, but if you're, but if you, I've said this, I've said this a million times before too, which is all the authors, any author who says that plot is not important is an author who cannot plot. Um, so I, and I, I really believe that it's an important thing and can be used. There's a reveal before the end of part two in a hotel room. I won't give any way more than that. But that's the favorite reveal I've ever written. And that is comes purely of plot. But you have to make it work. But because of that, I really felt that the book had energy and I really wanted it to have energy and I really wanted it to move like Life of Never Letting Go does, I hope, you know, where there's this rocket that is taking you forward. And so for the epigraphs, I wanted to have a little fun. I wanted to try to suggest a little flavor. Mm -hmm. So instead of you know, from Friend the Earthworms of Sky, I had that, uh, you know, from the depths of hell, I spit at thee, which is very, you know, Shakespearean. It's from Moby Dick, but it's, it's a Shakespearean feel. So I wanted there to be a punk feel. Mm-hmm. And I wanted Susan the Banshees have a great song later in the career. It's from, uh, um, it's from Peekaboo. And uh, it's a song called Burn Up. And the lyrics just felt perfect. You know, King Salamander, that's his name. A desert maker, that's his game. The benign cremator, branding iron in his hand eager and willing to torch the land. And that just felt, because the song is, the song is called Burn Up and it's, um, if you listen to it, it starts slow and it just keeps building and building and building and building. And it just felt right. It felt like um, a little bit of punk to start yeah. the novel. And then, yep. burn, then burn Baby Burn, which is funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Every bit of a book means something in some way. And certainly when I read those, uh, Actually, I read them after I'd read the novel and I thought, you know, this is telling me don't take yourself too seriously. Have a bit of a laugh here. <laughs> yeah, it's meant to say your fun is welcome here. That's, that's really what it's meant to say, that not everything has to be Shakespeare. You know, you can, you can write quality, you can tell a quality story. It doesn't have to be throbbing with meaning, you know. Yeah. Um, it can have meanings and it can have depths and it can have all those wonderful things, but it can still be a cracking good tale. I've got one final question for you, Patrick. Um, in The Crane Wife, you wrote that all stories begin before they start and never, ever finish. That's true because narrative has a habit of rounding things off and smoothing the edges. So do you ever imagine the continuation of the lives of your characters? Only a little bit, because in a way, I kind of feel like it's not my business, you know, that I have inhabited them for a while. And then I've let them free, you know? I mean, I have my own opinions about what happens at the end of More Than This, and I have my own opinions of what happens after the end of Burn and after the end of the Kev's Walking Trilogy. But kind of, I just want them to be living their lives somewhere happily, making their own decisions, you know? Not bothered by the author telling them what to do all the time. And that, that's, more, that's more what life is. A story is only ever a sliver of life. It's only ever a photograph of a moment. And uh, you can't pretend that it's all of life. You can pretend that it's an important slice of life and that it contains all of life within it. The whole point of life is that it continues and that there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more, there's more, which is something so important to say to a teenager. There is more always. And so I always tend to like leaving my books just that little bit open. There's more stories to be told, but our version, our story finishes here. Fantastic. And so must our interview. Uh, So thank you so much for joining me uh, in the Reading Corner today, Patrick. It's been such a delight talking to you. And a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to In the Reading Corner with Just Imagine. 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, you can find many more on the podcast section of our website, justimagine.co.uk, plus via iTunes or SoundCloud or your usual podcast provider. Don't forget to pass the pod and recommend this fantastic free resource to your friends and colleagues.